if the mother saw the daughter come with a beetle, she might faint. If they saw with a rolling stone, she'd commit suicide. But if Peter came, it's a nice-looking, blue-eyed Catholic boy, that was okay. You're listening to One More Tune, conversations on live music. My name is Ian Byrne. Welcome to episode 54 of One More Tune, everyone. In this episode, I chat with the legendary English music manager, agent, promoter, star maker and industry impresario Harvey Lisberg, whose autobiographical book, I'm Into Something Good, My Life Managing 10cc, Herman's Hermits and many more, is out now and available wherever you get your books. Harvey has enjoyed an astounding level of success over the course of his 60 or so year career. He's worked with a who's who of the industry. Uh, just as a sample, listen to this, right? As a manager, he's worked with Herman's Hermits, who he discovered and broke in America. 10CC of I'm Not In Love fame. Tony Christie, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice. Wayne Fontana, Julie Christie. That's just a sample of who he's managed. As a promoter, he worked with Michael Jackson, Madonna, the Rolling Stones, Rod Stewart, Barry Manilow, Queen, the Eagles, the Who, Tom Petty. The list goes on and on. And that is just in music. He also dabbled in the snooker world for a few years, managing two of the greatest talents the game has ever produced in Jimmy White and the one and only Alex Higgins. So not the worst resume. Harvey was in a great mood when I caught up with him at his home in Palm Springs last month. He was full of stories in the hour or so that we chatted, so I'm excited to dig into his book and get the whole picture of his life. We talked about all sorts of stuff, ranging from what the Manchester scene was like in the 60s, why he wasn't interested in the 80s and 90s Manchester explosion, the Factory Records era, uh, going on tour in the States with Herman's Hermits after reaching number one on the charts there, how he almost signed Queen right before they gained worldwide success, and the current state of the music industry and what similarities and differences that there were between the managing sports stars and musicians. That's just a couple of the things we talked about. We talked about a whole lot more in between. Um, such a fascinating chat. Uh, it really is a gold mine. So big thanks to Harvey for taking the time to chat with me. Um, as a snooker fan too, uh, I was tickled pink to hear some stories on the uh, the heyday of the snooker uh, world in the 80s. Um, we could have a separate podcast uh, talking all about that. Um, but this is a music podcast so there we are um, no music on the pod today so it's just the two of us chatting his son Philip also makes a brief appearance pottering around the kitchen um, making some tea I think in the background so classic Englishman behaviour there I've linked to Harvey's website harveylisberg.com where you can find out more info on him and his career and I've also linked to uh, where you can buy his book so if you enjoy the chat Definitely go buy the book. I just got a copy of it. I'm going to be digging into it starting tonight. Uh, so I can't wait to get all the other juicy stories uh, that we didn't get to cover on the pod. Um, if you like this episode or any of the episodes, please like and subscribe on whatever platform you listen to this on. Um, also, if you can rate the show on Spotify, if you're a fan, that is a massive help. Um, we're also on Twitter at one more tune pod and instagram at one more tune podcast and as always if you want to support the show we are on buy me a coffee too which i've also linked to in the show notes any and all contributions go to covering the costs of producing the show and everything is very much appreciated and um, my next few shows have an irish team to them uh, as i'm back home in the motherland for a little bit so i have some chats lined up with some exciting up-and-coming irish artists which i'm pretty pumped for um, so keep an eye out for those I'll be rolling those out in the next few weeks and months uh, in the meantime that's it for me enjoy the chat with Harvey and I'll see you next time so Harvey we've a lot to discuss today uh, you've uh, you've a new book out that uh, details what 60 50 60 years of, of a career it started in 63 yeah it is actually 60 years you're right yeah. so okay so I want to get into a ton of stuff, but just to get started, can you can you give an just a description of what the music scene was like in Manchester when when you were started? Because obviously, you know, the Beatles are the Beatles. Everybody knows that story. But what was the scene like for you? You know, growing up, music wise, you know, was it all just was it all just live kind of show band type stuff cover acts or was there any original 
acts you know playing these small venues no there was quite there was quite a healthy um scene in the 60s in the 50s where it started it was all the coffee bar and uh do up music and lot, everything infiltrated from America with Moon and June until you fell asleep. Rock and roll came in in 1956 with Bill Haley and the Comets and then on with Elvis and all Little Richard and Fats Domino and all that sort of thing. But the live scene started, I think, really in the 60s where there were clubs in Manchester where you could go. Originally, there were jazz clubs. That's how they started. The live music started with jazz clubs. And then that subsequently went, or I don't know which way, into skiffle or skiffle, whatever. People got guitars and played things like Cumberland Gap. And I actually learned the guitar from somebody that was a, a player in one of those bands, a skiffle group at the Badiga Jazz Club in Manchester. And uh, he came to a party at my house and taught me four chords. And that's when I started playing the guitar. I'd always learned the piano. But it was always a feeling then there was live clubs on all over the place. So there's the Oasis, which was sort of Manchester's answer to the cabin. cabin. And there were there many little clubs where people could go and see live music. These little bands were getting together. And so you could go. And it, it, it had an atmosphere there. This was probably pre-Beatles. But once the Beatles started, there was a massive explosion. Just incredible. And it was fabulous living in that time because you could take your pick. You could go and see the Rolling Stones at the Oasis if you want to, who were virtually unknown, or all these blues groups that hadn't happened yet. Rod Stewart, Long John Baldwin, the Hoochie Coochie Man, you know, you just go Brian or whatever, all those bands, you know, the, the, the Georgie Fame. They were all basically jazz orientated blues bands and they all played the same song as I saw her standing there and all that sort of thing. So, um, the first time I saw Herman's Hermits, they they were playing a Johnny Be Good. I saw her standing there. They had it they did do Mrs. Brown who got a lovely daughter, other things like that. But I mean most groups played the same rhythm and blues orientated things from America, all influenced by the Everly Brothers, Little Richard Elvis, no, that's what it was. So the music was quite healthy in a way. In fact, Manchester was a, probably the number one club scene in England, then possibly even over London. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, so like when you're, you know, when you're going out on a whatever Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, are you going to see all of these different bands and they're all playing the same songs? No, I, I wasn't at the time. No, I was writing songs and I was just involved in music from playing the piano and guitar. And I didn't really go out and look at live bands at that stage. Um, all the, I went to jazz clubs, though, but that was basically to, to see women. You know, it wasn't really to indulge in the music. The beer was good. And there were always social, that was, in those days, people actually used to speak to each other without having to go through social networks. So you could find women or whatever. And it was really, it was a club, that was the nice part about it. It was nothing, the music was kind of incidental because I didn't like, uh, I didn't like some of the jazz. Some of the jazz I loved, but most of it was a bit boring and it didn't really appeal to me that much. But the actual atmosphere of all these young people looking to meet each other and it's a really a social thing and that yeah i did used to go to that and the coffee bars were very big in those days as well which were just ridiculous but pre-starbucks you know they had all these little coffee all these coffee places where people used to go after the movies or whatever and they go there and they meet people again it was it was an interesting time i sometimes think of it you know when i think of neil simon's play biloxi blues he said was it because you were young or was it because it was a great time but i believe those times were the most astonishing times in my life they were just unbelievable but yeah you obviously being in it at the time you didn't realize that you were seeing the explosion of a scene and no. yeah yeah no when the beatles came that was it that was just heaven we actually had somebody that didn't have an american slurry accent saying trite words with humor and brilliance and actually <laughs> worth listening to. So then is it safe to say, you know, before when they came out, did they change the like like the way you were saying there, young people just went out to these shows to converse and maybe the music was on in the background. But when they came, you know, did you notice a distinct shift in how the audience 
change their you know behavior were they just wrapped up at this stage or or was it still a bit similar oh absolutely it was completely different then when you went to see a band you went to see a band and you went you listened to the music and the band were all into thought well the beatles are a good example we're going to write our own music we're going to do it and there's the, there was so much brilliance in the music at that time because it wasn't a question of doing your own material it was a question of songwriters peddling songs to people and the groups did them and so you had tropical forum wider shade of pale or herman's hermit simon and something good goffin king man from man freddie and the dreamers wayne fontana they weren't writing their own songs they were getting songs and then the beatles came along and of course then it encouraged everybody to get involved everybody had guitar bands searchers and I mean, Liverpool had about six, Billy Kramer and the Dakotas, you go on and on and on and on and on. And it sort of, it opened the door. So now, instead of going to see, as you say, a show band type thing playing current music, you had these people playing actually more, they were, I don't know, they were more representative of their age. It was 17-year-olds playing to 17-year-olds. It wasn't... 24-year-old CD jazz players playing to some senior ones. And was there, you know, was there any sort of a distinction between, you know, was there um, local pride involved, you know, where the Manchester bands were like, no, we're going we're gonna to make our own sound and these Liverpoolian scousers coming up, we're going to show them. Abs absolutely. Liverpool and Manchester were rivals. It's always, yeah. Okay. Liverpool came from your lot. They all came from Ireland. <laughs> and my lot came from Eastern Europe. And they were kind of, and they looked down on each other. And the history of Liverpool and Manchester was that Liverpool got all, when, when cotton was king at the turn of the century, all the cotton had to go to the Lancashire mills to Manchester and it had to land at Liverpool. So Liverpool very cleverly taxed everybody and everybody in Manchester hated to pay tax to Liverpool. <laughs> So they finally did the, the ship canal, and then the, the, the then we could get the boats right through to Manchester, not pay the taxes to Liverpool, or predominantly Irish. And uh, also, because the Irish have the gift of the gab, the comedy, the music from the Irish pubs, from the Irish music, it was a lovely, lovely place. Whereas Manchester was probably Eastern European musicians who were all family-orientated, say Jewish or Italian, whatever, they were in a family that sat around a piano. That was their entertainment. And the family was interested in classical music sometimes. It was totally different. They kind of looked down on Liverpool. It's like kind of inferior. And then we had the wonderful rivalry between Manchester United and Liverpool, which became... And then Liverpool won the league for 20 years on the road. And so by that time, it was like war. You know, I've got friends that... You know, when we're playing Liverpool... And I say, I really think Liverpool might win. Yeah, I hate that. Can't stand it. You know, it's really, really, it's a friendly rivalry. And I love the accent. And the Liverpool accent is, Liverpoolian accent, second to none. I mean, they used to go to Liverpool just to hear people say, it's done, you know, give their accent. It's fabulous. And that was it. And the other thing about Liverpool was that it was the headquarters of comedy. So all the comedians went through agents in in Liverpool, it was really quite annoying. It was they locked me down. When I had a big firm, subsequently after all the initial success, I wanted to expand into to comedy, to classical music, and it was all yeah. locked, all locked up, monopolies all over the place. But Liverpool controlled comedy. Arthur Askey, Norman Wisdom, um, you know, Ken Dodd. Ken Dodd, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, interesting. So so then tell me, you know, because I've I've read that basically you heard please please me and then that was the end of it you wanted to just switch up what you were doing and get fully into music so what was it simply that was the kind of the spark the that set the fire or well no the spark was i was bored out of my brains being an article clerk i got a university degree to avoid having to do the whole of the course so i only had to do two years but i was going out of my mind and i was playing music and the beatles came along and Epstein came along and it just it triggered something. I thought, well, if, if he could do it, why can't I do it? And the most important thing for me to, was I was going to stay in Manchester. I wasn't going to go anywhere. He subsequently went to London 
But my aim was to, I went in partnership with Danny Vitesse from Kennedy Street Enterprises, bought the partners up, and we just had a very, very successful company. We had one, two, and three in America. Wayne Fontana, Freddie, and Herman, a one, two, three in Billboard, and we're all from like Salford, you know, so it's, it's quite an impressive thing. And we didn't sell out. So, so you, you you were always repping Manchester from day one. Absolutely, and Manchester. Originally, I was Manchester City, but I switched to Manchester United when I was seventeen for various reasons of mismanagement. <laughs> I became a season ticket holder in '63, and I, I got my name on the seats. Still got the season tickets today. Oh, there it's you quite go. Funny. Good stuff. Good stuff. So tell me this. So, so you know, yeah, you discover, for want of a better word, Herman and the Hermits. What is the timeline between you know you managing them and then hopping on a flight to america with them it wasn't long um i was finishing my accountancy studies and there's a long story going around to how we got to i'm in something that the song but when we did finally put it out we started we put it out in um, 1964 and it went to number one in england right away and then it followed into america and then we started having hit after hit after hit after hit in America. Ridiculously so. So in 65, it's only a year later, we were on the plane to America where we did our initial tour with Dick Clark's Caravan of Tours with about 20 other acts, which broke them wide open. We had like five records in the top 30 at one stage. Who, who were some of those other acts that you were with? Uh, the acts on the tour, Bobby V, Freddie Cannon, Martha and the Mandela's, uh, D'Anthony, uh, I don't know, and all those, uh, just a massive thing. And it was a Dick Clark. It was Dick Clark. He was the guy that was promoting it. And we all got paid flumpers. And, uh, you know, and then we had like, we were in a really ridiculous position. We were sort of had all those records in the charts and we were getting the same as the opening act. So that sort of disintegrated. And we went to Frank Barcelona. And he was our agent and looked after us. And we did our own dates after that. So you mustn't have been touring around England much before. Um, not really. Not, not really, no. It, it, was, it was mostly recordings. I, I can't remember. The, we were always a working band. Herman and the Hermits were making loads of money before we'd even seen a record deal. As soon as I signed them, I got them on three. I got them on a really good date sheet. None of us had wives. None of us had houses none of us had three ferraris in the garage and we were all single we were all single normal straight males and so um we were loaded we went out <clears throat> on certain nights we did three day three dates in one in one money in one day we did five o'clock show a nine o'clock show and we'd end up at the irish club at shorrocks at two o'clock in the morning so at the end of the week, they all got about £100 each, which God knows what it's there. And they had no expense, no, nothing just to blow it in. So this was all around Manchester? You were you just constantly... Yeah, and they were building and building all around the Manchester area, all the Manchester clubs. And then finally, they ventured to the cavern. Once the Beatles stopped, I then got friendly with Bob Wooler at the cavern, and he took the boys in there. And in the meantime, I got TV for them, which was really critical. A program called Scene at Six Thirty with Johnny Hamps. They had a, and Peter was very good looking, so he was a good focal point. He was the clean cut one. He was the one that, if the mother saw the daughter come with a beetle, she might faint. If they saw her with a Rolling Stone, she'd commit suicide. But if Peter came, it's a nice looking blue eyed Catholic boy. That was okay. So okay, so if you're doing these three shows a day, you know, from from your job's perspective. What are you doing while the guys are on stage for these three shows? Are you, you know, paying attention? Are you looking? I did. I did absolutely everything. It went from the publicity to the dates to the equipment to the cars to the every single thing the manager did in those days. And I liked doing it. And on top of that, I had to go to Bow Street Magistrates Court to get permission to be a guardian for Peter who was 16 to go to America because you couldn't go, you couldn't work in America unless you had your parent or a guardian with you uh, if you were underage. Oh, so was that a case of a few brown envelopes were passed or everything was above board? No, it wasn't. It was, a, it was straight. No, you couldn't do it because it was, it was very strict. 
There's an immigration in America, as you know. It's, yeah. it's not, you can't play around with it. I mean, you can, and then you don't go. So then can you describe, because, you know, from, from finishing up a few nights a week in the Irish club after doing a couple of shows and just kind of doing that kind of circus, what, can you remember just what your feelings were or what the, uh, everything about then bringing it to America, which, you know, obviously, you know, chalk and cheese. Well, you know, the exact, well, I was, as I said, this college in Wales, where I was studying from my finals of accounting, and the record was going up the charts in America. Once I got the record out in England, MGM took it for America. It started going up the American charts. And I'm phoning on one of the payphones, we're putting coins in a phone, speaking to some American A&R guy, saying what the sales figures are, going berserk. And finally, we went to America. Obviously, it was that was very exciting to us. We'd never been to America. It was just... Alarm. And everybody in America, well, you probably know from your accent, but when I used to go into a, a chemist shop or something like that, a pharmacy, the girl would say, oh, stick around. We love to hear your accent. <laughs> and I, it was just ridiculous. I mean, it was you, you, the world was your oyster. Anybody that had an English accent, oh, you're Australian. Yeah, I'm Australian. Yeah. Anything you like, there. <laughs> stick around and talk. And so the actual sound of the English voice and... If you were English, and they all had long hair, that was revolutionary to everybody in America. And you're asking about what happened to the stage presentation. Well, all the girls were screaming, so you couldn't hear the bloody music. So it was like, it was kind of a weird situation where you go into a hall. I mean, when we saw the Beatles, I don't think we heard anything. Just the noise, screaming girls down your ear. It was like, it's weird. And I suppose as well, you know, like having, it's, I mean, if if you the first single that you release from the first band you manage goes to number one, right? So you're kind of you're off to a winner at the start. So did that kind of make it easier to to make the transition? All my friends hated Herman's Hermit. All my contemporaries said, "What the hell are you messing around with that for? Are you kidding?" Then it got to number one. Oh, there'll only be a one-hit wonder. Then the record second record fell. Well, we told you, wasting your time, just get, get on with your career, do what you want to do. After about 12 hits, they shut up. <laughs> the, the 12th <laughs> one shut them off, did it? <laughs> They'd had enough beating. And that, that's my thing about my life. It's, it's a question of don't take rejection lightly. You just got to ignore it. The people making decisions in record companies, committees, have got as much idea about music as the man on the bleeding moon. What they can read is that there's 100,000 streams on some unknown person that's farted on stage or something and that's okay we'll sign them forget the fact there's a brilliant freddie mercury somewhere that might want some encouragement you know so it's it's funny you mention that because i wanted to ask you you know having now i know you've you might not have been as involved in in the last few years in the, in the industry as previously but you know i'm sure you still keep an eye on things can you describe kind of, you know, from from your heyday and, you know, the the changes over time? What are the big changes and things that haven't changed in the music industry? And The changes in the 60s were absolutely immense. Um, the changes were not just music. It was fashion. It was culture. It was young people didn't have to wait for somebody to die to get a job. 22-year-olds were getting jobs in power. So the whole of the young thing, which the, the elder people didn't like at all, and the establishment were not happy at all with what was going on. It was a revolution. Yeah, it was totally different. I was the 60s. And are you talk, and talking about the music, the music went through phases where the manager was the powerful thing, Brian Axel himself. Then the record producer was the powerful thing. It started with the record company was screwing everybody as the football club screwed all the footballers. And the record company screwed their artists. They all paid nothing. And, and you know, it's not even... I know you're smiling, but it, I, that was really annoying at the time. But anyhow, <laughs> then in the next... Has that changed? Then that changed. Oh, that, Has it changed? Are the record companies still screwing artists over? If they can. But they're very hypocritical about it. You know, me too. You know, I, I don't... Yeah, it's quite funny because I, I was in a dispute recently and the guy said, you exploited, you did this and you did that. And I thought, 
that's exactly what you do. <laughs> He's telling me what I've done to artists and then I exploited them and I've done this and I've done that. And here's a record company that get them to sign everything away as soon as they come because you can't get a record deal. So record company are very powerful today. I mean, they really are powerful. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's very sad. The whole of the music business is kind of disintegrated in a way. It's gone into social media has led to a new phase, artificial intelligence. God knows what we're going to get next. But in those days, it was the bands were live. They played live. They got the deals because the record company, even though they were pretty stupid, most of them, could um, develop them and the public went for them. There were very strange things happening in those days. I mean... There was a record by Ken Dodd called Tears, which sold two million copies. I never met anybody in my life that had ever bought one. I, I just, I just <laughs> so there is a market out there that you just don't know, although buy a Benny Hill record or something like that, something weird will happen. And, but today it's a whole marketing packaging. You don't see one flew over the cuckoo's nest. You see Avatar 15. They're underwater now. They'll be under the earth next. God knows where they'll be. God forbid they should do a decent performance and entertain people normally. Everybody has to be packaged in so much. And yeah, well, that, that's interesting because, you know, you just talked about, you know, bringing Hermit's Hermits over and or the Beatles as well. You couldn't even hear the band playing. So what was it? What was the kind of priority for you? Was it we need to sound good on stage or we need to look good or we need to just be presented good? No, no. The sound certainly wasn't good at stage, no. I think the most important thing, if you really want the truth, Peter had the personality himself. He was like a cheeky boy. He did his show, and whether it's good or bad, or whether you like it or not, it was a show. And he looked good. They looked fantastic. He got Best Dressed Man of the Year in 1968 in England. He was a fashion... He loved clothes, and he always dressed very well. And the boys very clean cut. They were actually from reasonably reasonable backgrounds, so they weren't they weren't off the streets or anything. They were just they were just normal. I call normal. So they always looked right. The Hollies looked normal. You know what I mean? They weren't it wasn't they weren't looking for a gimmick in they were just clean cut. That was what I was saying the boy next door. The sound didn't matter that much. The sound obviously as technology developed, the sound got better and better and better. And the bo- and actually the band were good. The band were good. I mean, the band that I ended up with, with the Urban Summits, were totally underdeveloped because Mickey Most, who was a record producer, never encouraged them to write their own material. And in fact, was quite just not against it, but even didn't use them on some of the records. And they were very upset at the time. It creates a lot of friction. So then, when you were, you know, looking at other artists, or just, or just in general, at any any artist that you may want to sign or or be interested in, was it simply a case of how do they look, and then everything else after I can I can fix or mold? No, I think I mean I'm not, without being big headed. I think I could have done anything uh, with the contacts that I developed and the friendships I developed in record companies or publicity firms, we could always use the best. I mean, even with Jimmy White, who's a snooker player, we got him a suit from France. We got him photographed by Lord Litchfield. We changed the face of snooker. I mean, so therefore, when it came to getting an artist, I, I started with, all right, I started with I'm in Something Good, Herman's Hermits, then we got Graham Gooman, songwriter, Kevin Godley, Laurel Cream, all the songwriters, because I was mad on songs. Songs were the key thing, get a good song your way. And then we got 10CC. They wrote their own music. That was wonderful. But unfortunately, they didn't sell out the stadiums like Pink Floyd. So then I tried to get another band, like Barclay James Harvest, because they were selling out in Germany and everywhere else. And then Tom Jones was happening all over the place. And I thought, well, I want a Tom Jones one. So we went to Tony Christie. I mean, we we knew what we were going to do. We I, I believe that without all the monopolies that were around, we would have been the biggest company in the world until we'd have been dissolved by some government saying it was a monopoly. But we couldn't get in. We couldn't get into comedy, couldn't get into classical music, couldn't get into football. You could get into football. I mean, I managed a football. I managed Gary Owen, who was an England under-21 footballer, 
And I phoned at Manchester United, who he wanted to go, and he refused to take any phone call from me. We don't speak to managers. I'm very pleased to say they have to speak to them today. <laughs> if the manager will speak to them and not Paris Saint-Germain. Well, yeah, well, she's agent fees. Well, we could talk about how managers and agents have maybe ruined football a little bit. But anyway, that's a, that's a separate story. Uh, I want to talk to you. You mentioned Jimmy White there. So I'm, I remember, you know, growing up and watching Jimmy play in the world championships and and uh, and we're big into snooker as a kid uh, and Alex Higgins is this mythical figure for Irish I managed you know? him as well yeah so I, w- I want to talk to you a little bit about both of those but can you can you draw some similarities and differences between what it's like managing a musician versus managing a sports person or a snooker star like is there anything that you see uh, in them that are similar. There were some. There were some interesting things. Firstly, I'm sure there was um, the pub. <laughs> the well, the no, the publicity. I mean, things that you don't think about. Publicity. I got more publicity managing Jimmy White for six weeks than I had twenty years doing the excess of all the rock and roll artists I've been involved with. It was incredible. Double page spreads in the Sun. You know, of course they weren't very complimentary, but that's all right. I'm a fat Jewish capitalist. I can take it. Just get it in the paper and, you know, that's fine. It'll sell Jimmy and we'll have photos of Jimmy. So there's that. And to such an extent that Alex Higgins revolutionised the world for me when he charged the paper for an, for doing an article. I mean, when I was managing Herman's Hermits, I would have done anything to get in a paper. And Alex says, no, £600. <laughs> and he got the bloody money. They paid him. So it showed that all that time... The paper getting all free press and everything. And here's Alex, like, I'm going to get paid for it. And he was, I thought he was mad, but he was so big, it didn't matter. Yeah, so there's a publicity angle. The drugs were, the same drug dealers were at the back of, um, back of the snooker halls. They were the same bloody faces that you want to get out of the way. You know, just don't want them around, but they're all there. Gambling, well, I think there was more gambling in the, maybe the managers, the colonel. Epsi, myself, we, we like gambling. We're serious. Well, not serious, but gambling, yeah, we were gamblers. And the snooker players were bigger gamblers than us. I mean, Alex Higgins would think nothing of spending 25,000 quid in an afternoon at the horses and lose. It's the sort of money, you know, people can't think of. What about, per- what about personality-wise between, you know, between the personalities of musicians versus sports? Again, is it, is it the same? Well, then, then well, that, that's, that's okay, because Keith Moon could be compared to Alex Higgins. Right, 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 right. And yet, Cliff Richard could be compared to <sighs> Steve Davis. You know, people are people, you know. Yeah, it's like... There's the clean-cut ones, and there's the rough ones, and there's the in-between ones, and there's the shady ones, and the ones that get banned for betting on football or whatever, you know. Tony got done for eight weeks or something for gambling on his team. It's not enough to get 400 grand a week. <laughs> so, so for, you know, from your perspective, there's, there's not much difference in between, in between managing you know, sports or, or musicians? Well, it's a, it's a difference in lifestyle. I think the, um, the obviously the groups are around record studios and recording and everything, whereas the snooker players are always in CD halls with smoke-filled atmosphere and pretty low... I don't want to generalise, but, you know, they weren't... I'd put it negatively. They weren't the upper class. You know what people that are going to follow Pink Floyd or whatever. You know it's a it's a different world really. So the the support was different. Um, there was more hypocrisy in snooker. It was much more. Um, it was very much establishment. Right, right. right when right. I got into it, everybody looked like a penguin, and um, I decided I'm going to revolutionized the look. Although well, Kirk Stevens from Canada did the same thing. He also, but he was a coke guy. He was on cocaine. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, I mean, <laughs> there, is a lot, there are lots of similarities. <laughs> That's all. But maybe there are similarities throughout all things. Maybe athletes can't do it because they can't, they've got to look after their fitness. But I don't know. So it's a, it's a very interesting question. I need to give it more t- thought, really. But still. Well, who gave you more headaches? Oh, Higgins. Jesus. 
he was impossible. He, he was unbelievable. I'll tell you the two stories which you will love. Um, well, first of all, we had to get rid of him ultimately. I got him and I said, right, we're putting him in hospital. We're going to clean him up. No drinks, no cigarettes, no women, nothing. You're going to this nursing home in Rochdale and you're going to do as you're told. Take it or leave it. Okay, all right. So I did it. So he was there. The, uh, the doctor from the hospital said, what a horrible little man. He was getting vodka brought through on the edge, having nurses on the side. God knows what was going on, but we did improve him. Unfortunately, he was effing and blinding all the time to the girls on the switchboard, and they got very upset at our firm. They couldn't take it anymore. It was really, really bad. So there was a meeting of our firm, and we decided to get rid of him. Now, Jeff Lomas, who was a friend of his, didn't want to get rid of him. He wanted to keep him all cocked. And I thought, right, well, if he goes and wins a bloody world championship now, what are we going to think? So I've got 1,000 quid on through my accountant with William Hill. He won 25,000 quid. He won the tournament. So, so he paid you back for... And I got the only money I earned from Alex Higgins. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and my favourite one, which you'll like, we're at Batley Variety Club, and it's a snooker evening, and we're snowed in, Yorkshire, middle of winter, three feet of snow outside. We're going home, Harvey. I said, well, no, we're not. We're staying here with everybody else. No, well, I'll sort it out. I'll sort it out. He gets four people from the club because he's always got people worshiping with shovels, right? They go outside and they dig this long stretch wheelbase, all the wheels off, so we can move the move. Now we move the car, and the car's moving. Go on, Jeff, take, take. I said, This is crazy, Alex. Take, don't worry, don't listen to him. <laughs> right, we get to the motorway, M62 closed. Take no notice, Jeff. Take no notice. We're going down the road onto the onto the motorway, and a lucky bastard, a big gritter came along with a lorry, and we followed it all the way into Manchester. And I said, "Okay, I'll drop you at home now." If you're, no, no, I think I'll go and have a drink at the Excelsior Hotel. This is three thirty in the morning, and that's my friend Alex. He's a character, but a great player and great grit. That's when he beat Jimmy that time in the semi-final. We didn't. We were very upset, but I thought, well, Jimmy's 21. He's going to win it anyhow. It didn't really matter. But Higgins' break was astonishing. So, so the two of them were under your management at the same time? So. No, no. We got Jimmy White and we did the business. And then Alex decided he's going to leave Del Simmons, his manager. Well, I'll have a bit of that. And he came to us, used us for three months, swearing, and then he went back to Del Simmons. For three months. All right. So he, he wasn't hanging around Jimmy enough to, to be a bad influence. They were close friends. No, Jimmy idolized uh, Alex. He was a, his hero. Yeah. And they got on very well. I mean, there's, there was a side of Alex that was just, he was astonishing. The other thing, he, you know, he said, he, he was always outlandish. He said to me, he's standing next to Len Ganley, the referee, and they're having a, an argument that you can't imagine about a rule in snooker. So he said, here, Harvey, here's 600 pounds. You get 600 pounds off. Len, 10p, give him 10p. So I'm holding 600 pounds of 10p as to who's correct on this. I mean, this is, I mean, you say, so you don't get that in the, in the, in the music business, I don't think. I mean, total insanity, but it was fun. Sorry to go on so much about it, but they were a happy time of my life, even though I didn't know. Absolutely. So if, if, the, if the snooker area was total insanity, then what were, what were the musical eras that you operated in? Was it managed insanity, controlled insanity? Um, well, that's a very good question. The bands were so different, you know, Herman's Hermits were like pussycats. But if I had a band like, well, say, say Barclay James Harvest or something, they were very self-opinionated, strong-willed, musically, very politically orientated, move on to the chameleons, and they probably hated my guts because I was not representing the class of people that they were representing or fighting for. But we all, we all had... The funny thing is, there's still a camaraderie even through the whole thing because the band know you're trying to do something for them. I mean, when we got the Chameleons, we took them to a great producer in Elliot Mazer in America. No, it wasn't. Oh, Barclay, I'm getting mixed with Barclays. All right, no. I'm sitting there. Who was the Cure guy? Was that the guy? Smith. Yeah, 
I'm sorry, you can cut this out afterwards. You don't mind, do you? No, I've got, I've got to confuse that. I, what I was trying to say was that they know that I'm going to get the, try and get the best person for them to do the job. I, even when I had an Irish show band that came over what, during the middle of the... Um, we had this band which was... Um, it was during the IRA thing, and we had to go into Ireland, and I was along this road on the border in a van, waiting for a, the van to be blown up with police on both sides of the road. And it, it was very frightening. We got them to America, and we got Glyn Johns to do their album. Which, what, what was the name of the band? Yeah, it's a good question. I've forgotten. That's terrible. I really, I really don't know. I'm pretty poor with names. I managed to Hills Angels, and um, when I got home to my wife, she said, "There's a crank. One of your friends been on the phone called Benny Hill." I said, "No, Benny Hill. Yeah, he's got a stupid." schoolboy voice and it was Benny <laughs> and I can't remember the name of this dumb group these two girls who are identical twins stunning blondes and they were just gorgeous and I, I, I just I wanted to phone them up now to see whatever happened and it, but I can't remember their damn name so one of my faults I get names confused and the Irish show band I, I can't remember it but it, I did handle Stockton's wing for a time indirectly and they were a sort of an IRA band. That was through my um, attorney called David Landsman, and he was involved with U2's manager. And at that time, we were, he was trying to push all the Irish bands through to me. And they were very good. They were very talented. But we never got anywhere with them. But why, why in particular was he trying to push them through to you? Just because you were the, the guy at the time? Yeah, because I was very powerful. And uh, the bands were very good. And they Rob Strong as well, yeah, from the, yeah. The, oh. the commitments, yeah. The commitments, that's right, yes. That, Andrew, Strong. Andrew Strong. Andrew yeah. Strong. Andrew, yeah. So, I mean, well, I, well I, I was very into Ireland because my father's two sisters married Irish people and lived in Dublin. So we went there regularly to Dublin. And I had a, had a great feeling for Ireland. I loved Ireland. I loved Dublin. It's beautiful. And I also loved... The other places I went to there, and there's what I loved about it was the live music scene was so healthy there. It's wonderful. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And Ireland now as well, the the music scene is kind of experiencing a bit of a renaissance. There's a lot, a lot of good music coming out of there at the minute. So, well, you always liked country music in Ireland, didn't you? And in England, it never happened. Oh, so explain that, yeah, because there, there's this fascination with country music back home, which I, I kind of get and I kind of don't, just because how Irish folk music is. Well, well, maybe it was because like with bluegrass and everything else, they have these yeah, jiggity. yeah. Kind of music and the violins and the banjos and it's like it's like going into an Irish pub and they're they're doing the fiddle or whatever it is you know what I mean it's like folk folk almost. yeah folk but folk's different to country right like you know modern yeah, know. country it's, doesn't have any of that stuff but it's still massive I I can't, I can't quite put my finger on it but well I think there's some very good songs come out of the country oh yeah 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 absolutely so so. Now, I understand that. I, I don't know either. It just uh, appeals to the Irish psyche. And maybe the Welsh to a bit, to a degree, but not in England. Everybody said country music, they used to pull their face up at it. But it's only now that I'm listening to country music of, of that era. And uh, I mean, there are, I mean, Chris Christopherson is bloody amazing. Yeah, yeah. He, well, he's, you know, he's the, the pinnacle. Unbelievable. And I did, only become acquainted with him really recently strange so is it is it two questions are what you know during your time was there any genre or area that you would never have touched or gone near just just weren't interested in yeah well that was the punk era right? that's when i went into snoop punk yeah because everybody well we had punk bands at strawberry studios don't get me wrong they all used the studios and everything but the, when it got to the punk era, the road manager was the manager. Somebody that was 20 that was on the same drugs as the band, and they all got together and they all did whatever they had to do. It wasn't a question of a, a, a fat manager that's going to get you the right moves because, oh, we don't want to be like that. And also, their bands are self-indulgent. They're wasting money. They're running Rolls Royces. We don't want that. We don't want that. Until they, until they got them, and then they have a problem. You know? It's like the uh, mayor of Manchester once. He's a labor man. 
driving around a Rolls Royce. And I said, how can you drive around a Rolls Royce? Your labour. He says, I want everybody to have one. Oh, yeah. Well, and there within lies the hypocrisy in politics. Um, You're not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we could go on all night. So, then, okay, so tell me, tell me then, because, okay, the punk scene, but then also let's talk about the, the, for want of a better term, the factory records scene, scene in Manchester. Were you ever interested in getting involved in that side of things, you know, with the explosion of Joy Division? No, no, I wasn't, you see. that, that I wasn't really interested at that stage because I was heavily into snooker from 1980 to 1985. And when I came out of snooker, I went back in with Graham and Andrew Gold and we formed Wax and we had a bit of success there. And then I went involved with a coloured girl group called Cleopatra. Oh, you Cleopatra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, they, were, they were late 90s, though, right? That was, that was after. That's right. Yeah, they were late 90s. Yeah, I'm talking about the 20-year period after gotcha. punk. I never got involved with it. The reason I didn't get involved with punk, because I had some bad experiences. I was very friendly with Jerry Moss and he had a he had the Stranglers sound to them. And he showed me telegrams from them and every other word was this, that, and that. It was, and I thought, it's not for me, this. It's rather like pornography to me at the time. You know, because at the time, video was starting, people were going around homes giving, you know, go and see this film. But at the bottom, there's a little bit of a thing which probably sold millions. And I thought, well, that's a good idea. But when I got in and I met the people, I decided it's not for me because it's just... You know, I knew it was all there. It was all going to happen. But the, it was just something about it that felt horrible. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just, look, you've got, you've got to choose what you want to do. If you want to have a, a nice... My, my other son, Paul, Philip's the one that works with me a lot, but Paul, he handled the script. His record company had the script. Um, and quite a, he was very successful. And he said, I don't want to take any artist that is going to give me trouble. In other words, if you start with somebody that you know is trouble, or this, like go to Cleopatra, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have no, it's going to be no easy ride. It's going to be a nightmare. So, but there are acts. So you, you've got to meet them, see that they're okay. And that you've got a, a communication with them. And there's not the resentment that I was talking about but, bands and managers, etc. And also there's the drug scene, which was very heavily around at the time of your talking about factory and all the ISIS. And I just, I wasn't on drugs. I, I almost, I semi-regretted not being, having part of that scene because I missed everything else on the Beatles trips and LSD and everything else. And I'm on the outside. And what's, what is all this? And all this music was coming out. And you think, well, they're there and we're, we're here. We're not the same. We're, you know, we're different. And was it, that, was it that clear cut at the time? You know, was it clear that this was the drug music and this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you, the music was that clear. The music was, you were, if you, certain music was enjoyed by people who were getting high on those drugs and they were listening to this music. But to somebody else, the music might have meant nothing. With all the psychedelic bands. What about uh, flip side of the question? Were there any artists that you would have loved to have managed, or that you were very close to signing that just didn't quite happen? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there was there was Queen. Queen were looking for management. I was in America. I'm very friendly with Peter Grant, much maligned manager of Led Zeppelin, but in my opinion, to me, was a pussycat. Um, but not to anybody else. Um, yeah, we, I said, look, you manage Led Zeppelin, I manage 10CC, I manage Herman's Hermits. Let's put a bid in together. We'll go to meet the people and we'll manage Queen, which would have been a big problem for me because 10CC and Queen were certainly, I don't think 10CC would have been happy with me managing Queen as well. But nevertheless, it was, it was a shot worth doing. So we had a meeting. Jim Beach was the accountant, four members of Queen, Peter Grant and myself, and we were rejected. We walked out of the door and I, I put it down to something else, but they, uh, they appointed John Reed as a manager who they kicked out after two years. And to this day, Jim Beach is now the manager for the last 30 years. And he was, took the meeting. So what did you put it down to? Why didn't you get the gig? Well, no, there was another reason which I didn't, and that was that Peter Grant had just formed a label called Swan Song. And he wanted to put Queen on Swan Song, which to me wasn't what I want. I didn't want or not want. I wanted to manage the band and get, X percent. I didn't care 
In fact, they're better off not being on Swan Song. They're better off being in Atlantic or a reputable company in America because America's not an easy place to break. And maybe there were sort of dealings between Peter and the band that maybe I didn't know, say, saying, well, I'll offer you this and I want you to do that. And they probably thought, well, no, well, we don't want to do that. You know, and therefore we're not going to go. Or we'll go with John Reed because Freddie likes John Reed, whatever the reason, or, you know. I don't really think want to put that on the air. That wouldn't be very clever. <laughs> but I walked out of the room backwards. Was this before their first record was released or did they have a bit of music on the go? Oh, no, they got rid of their managers after. Um, I've got the expert on Queen here. <laughs> I don't know. Was, hey, it, was it after Day of the Races? They got rid of their first manager. It was well before that. Before that. Okay. I, I thought so, yeah. I think so. With my son Philip, it's just uh, he, he's a, he used to be a Queen fan when I hated them. He used to come in and say, "Turn that shit off." <laughs> yeah, <You heard laughs> then you end up going for their management. What diabolical! Well, no, in my, in, in deference, I certainly love Freddie Mercury, and I got quite friendly with Roger Taylor for a while. So it was it was um, Freddie Mercury, in my opinion, and Elvis Presley, and Frank Sinatra are probably the three stalwart icons of the last century untouchable yeah they, yeah can't really argue with, with with what they put out um tell me a little bit about kennedy street enterprises because correct me if i'm wrong but that you were putting on massive shows for massive artists yeah well what happened with that was um danny batesh had this agency who represented freddie and the dreamers dave berry wayne fontana and a string of other acts as an agent and he had initially, year before, been involved in the first promotion of the Beatles tour in England. There's Roy Orbison, I think, headlining, but the Beatles were on it. So he'd actually, as a promoter, and, his, and his, he could say, I was the first person to have promoted the Beatles, right? And it's a true story. And I, when I joined the firm, I said, look, you've had this before. Why don't we have a, as I said, I wanted to expand the thing to all over let's have a promotion division and we started there and then we we took off on that side we promoted uh, michael jackson madonna i mean i'm trying to think of the small acts of it rolling stones <laughs> queen it was rod stewart and then in america we had barry manlow came over all the time i mean we and it got bigger and bigger and my theory was that well if we don't manage the acts, we can at least promote them and have a successful business. But that's a cutthroat business. I mean, there's some wonderful stories on that. I mean, wonderful stories. I mean, I got very friendly with Harvey Goldsmith, who outbid us on Diana Ross by making an offer to her where it was impossible to make any money. And when it came, when he got the gig from Diana Ross and changed all the prices and reduced her fee, I was like, we were we were really taken for suckers. It was wonderful. But I, I'm a sort of gambler maniac. And Danny Batesh is a conservative nine to five man who goes to Manchester City every single day of his life if they collect. And he had 34 years of dismal failure with Manchester City and United ruling the roost. Well, thank goodness now he's had about five years where he can at least go in, in his mature years to see a team winning. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. Okay, yeah, well, there you go. No, it's not true that. We all finish in the ground. Well, Harvey, you know, having, having pretty much touched on every aspect of, of the music business, which part did you enjoy the most? Was it the managing? Was it the promoting? Was it the touring? Was it the money? Was it the, you know, what if you could pinpoint one? No, the money's the material because I, I think, I believe I would have made money if whatever I'd have put my uh, soul into and accept the rejection of whatever that business offered me. No, the, the greatest thrill probably was finding an artist, doing a song, putting it out and seeing it go to number one as that first record. That was unbelievable. And then 50 years later, going to see Manchester United with my grandson and 30,000 people are singing, I'm into something good. And I turned around and I'm partly responsible for that. It gives you a kick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice bookend. Very, very nice. Um, and back to touring, you know, I want to know the difference. Having managed all of these bands across all of these decades, did you notice any major changes in how you know, the live performing, the touring changed 
from a business side of things you know like for example you were saying all you had to do was put a put a single out sell two million singles and you'd be minted whereas that kind of shifted a little bit so how did the touring side of things change and what and how did you have to react to to that the touring went bigger and bigger when i came to palm springs um there was a stadium here called indian wells tennis tournament stadium we went there and uh, my wife carl turned around to me and said this is only used three weeks in the year. Why don't we start putting concerts on? So I became the agent for that. We put on the Eagles, the Who, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Luis Miguel, and a few other small acts. And it was... So the, the mindset of people against promotion was weird. That They wanted to charge $100 a ticket for the Eagles, and I said, no. I said, we're going to charge $250 a ticket which is the same as every other town in America, except we've got the wealthiest community in America that can afford to pay it. Anyhow, we sold out three dates in about God knows how many hours. But that's how big it's got, how big it went. And it's changed back again now. Now that those days with COVID may be over, but it was going bigger and bigger and bigger, 100,000, 150,000. The ticket prices were going through the roof. And some people were making a lot of money. Um, and also the bands then got the power. So the Rolling Stones, when they worked, they want to work on a 97 2.5% ratio. With, That's a good with, ratio. Yeah. So it's a bit like, it's a bit like tax in the uh, 60s, where you're paying 97% tax, you can't make any money. So, and these promoters, because of their ego, and they maybe use them as loss leaders, they were in a position where... They were being blackmailed. And then you had these other things going on, like Michael Jackson would be represented by some situation, which was bloody uncomfortable. But, I mean, and we tried to get Whitney Houston. And there was, there's always, like you said, there's always problems. Like Paul said, keep away from the trouble. But you, you can't really when you get to the super divas. I had this stadium, so Barbara Streisand wouldn't do it because she doesn't work in the open air. Oh, you work that one out. So I get an architect to design a Wembley-type roof for the stadium, which would have cost $20 million. And, of course, the committee in their infant was, no, there's no way we're going to do that. So now in Palm Springs, there's a brand-new stadium that hosts 20,000 people and has hockey. And Frank Sinatra could have played there. Because it's 120 degrees in summer, automatically nobody goes to any indoor events but it is air conditioning you can go every day of the year but like i say you just got to have the brains to try and push things and fight against the negativity that's going to come back every suggestion every bright idea that i myself or my son or anybody come up with we're running against the wall we've done a thing recently on the manchester united city calypso which we did um when they won the league and cup in that in 2011 and i copied a, a West Indian guy called Lord Kitchener, who originally did it in 1956, changed the lyrics. And this year I've changed it again. And I got a, a, a vibe back that they, they don't want to use it because it's racist or something. Because I was using a kind of a Western... Cultural appropriation. Cultural appropriation. So now I'm thinking of re-recording it with a Manchester accent. I mean, it's so stupid. I mean, the world's changing. I have a couple more questions for you and one I want to ask because you mentioned you know putting the ticket prices up uh, because the the Palm Springs people could afford it and you know changing ticket prices locally I'm sure you're aware of all of the current kind of shit that's going on in the industry with Ticketmaster Live Nation all of these resale markets and and you know bots buying up these thousands of tickets so it's, it's absolutely disgusting so tell me about tell me about this because as somebody who you know you've you've seen the gamut all throughout the the history has there ever been a time before the last you know three or four or five years yeah that you saw that there was a problem with the whole ticket setup oh yeah when we had michael jackson I went up to a shop called Paper Chase, a guy called Brian Davis. I said, if I get tickets, would you sell them? Let's have a little stall here. Because I want to avoid the scalpers that are getting these things. Right, so I went to Harvey Goldsmith. I got 2,000 tickets, paid him the cash. 
got back with the tickets. We sold out in about three hours or whatever. We did charge. We charged a ticket fee. That was the beginning of all this rubbish. So it's you. You're the, you're ground zero. Yeah, I was the ground zero. I think we charged out <laughs> the twenty five p per ticket that was bought there, and that was well. It you know that was the idea. You can't make it from the artist. Well, you can make. So now it got out of hand, and now you want to go and see the Lakers. Well, you can pay 300, 3,000, 10,000 figures out of this world are being quoted. I mean, and if you think about the working class man that's got to take two kids to see Manchester United, it cost a fortune. I don't, they, I don't know where they get their money from. It, it always amazes me. I mean, you know, ticket prices are just what they are, but, and the scalping and, they try to stop it, but there's always ways around. You know, it's limited. So many tickets could be go to each person buying them. Whereas originally, you'd get some firm, some they did the same as I did, but much much heavier. Some Sharabank firm would buy fifty tickets for Elvis Presley, whoever it, you couldn't get to see, and then charge five hundred quid to take them there, <laughs> wine and dine them for twenty. And, grab all the rest of the money and, the sh and then also these meet and greet things after the thousand pound seats are here you know they're Pacelli so they come and meet and greet for a thousand dollars you know it's a it's a game isn't it supply and demand the people will pay it I suppose what can you do so so do you believe that or do you agree with the hypothesis that a live show should be treated as a free market economy no I, I think oh. It's got so many costs, it would be unfair to say free. I mean, the group's got to be there, rehearse, practice the equipment, sound, their crew. I mean, the bigger they get, like say, Paul McCartney's show is a hell of a production. I mean, I saw them at, um, in Liverpool in one of what was meant to be his last show 10 years ago, um, where I was sitting next to Roger Taylor, funnily enough. He remembered, he said, have you got any Wimbledon tickets? Was the first thing he said. <laughs> No, but I mean, the cost of staging that is tremendous. You'd have to charge the audience so that, that you're at least covered. I'm not, but I don't think you should. I don't know how you can stop black market. I don't know if you can make it illegal. I don't know what do you think. So what I think is so back in Ireland, right? So when Ticketmaster and Live Nation, um... you've got that guy McDowell, whatever his name is, McDonald, or who controls the whole world there, which is. And this... Oh, the M MC did well. Okay, so yeah, there's one big promotion. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to mention that. Yeah. No, that's absolutely fair. But from from the point of view of the Ticketmaster and Live Nation merger, when that happened, the Irish government passed a bill saying that no no ticket bought can be resold for higher than it was bought for. So what's happening over here is show goes on sale, people buy whatever 10, 50, 100 tickets immediately put it on the resale market which is already owned by Ticketmaster and Live Nation <laughs> and then and then they make their their profit that way and then record labels have specific deals for certain artists where certain artists get a percentage of the resale market and all this blah 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 so i think that there should be no resale market i think it should just be the price the prices are the prices if you if you want to resell it it has to be at the same price because what's the, it's just unfair otherwise but what do i know it's going to be very hard to monitor that yeah yeah it's it's just one of those things but i think it, it it's gathering enough momentum in the public where you know people are starting to ask questions why is there a facility fee why is there a processing fee why is there this fee this fee this fee so hopefully it'll get better but but we'll see. Well, maybe, maybe it will. But I mean, it's very, it's very difficult to control people. I, people used to ask me for tickets to a show initially, and uh, I never charged. I used to got them tickets, but then they say we want the first three rows, <laughs> and I tell them to fuck off. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. That's fair. Um, Harvey, I finish every uh, every conversation I have with this question, and I don't want you to think too much about it. Just kind of whatever whatever pops up in the top of your head. Um, let's say it's the last show you're ever gonna go see, so last one ever. I want you to name the main and the two supports, and then also what's the venue. Well, 
Is this in relation to things I've seen? Just your no, just anything. Maybe somebody who you missed, who you never got to see live, or just your favorite live performance, or you know anything. You say don't think for too long. Um, I think I've seen. I'll say what I regret not having seen on my birthday was the show with Chuck Berry, Little Richard, and Fast Domino at Las Vegas. I was here, and I didn't go to that show. And I, re I regretted it. it was the last show they all did. Chuck Berry was always one of my favorites. I would, yeah, I think I'd have quite liked to have seen Chuck Berry. I think he was extraordinary. And uh, Simon and Garfunkel, I did see, and Paul Simon, I did see. I've seen almost most of the people that are to be seen. I would have liked to have seen Sinatra in his heyday. I saw him when he was 75, and it wasn't the same thing, although his patter was brilliant, but the actual delivery wasn't worthy of the show. Um, and going back, I'm just trying to think of. I would have been interested in seeing Elvis Presley on stage because I'd like to have seen him before he got into his CD area. I'd like to have seen him earlier on. It would have been interesting. He never got out of America. That did. So we never saw him in Europe. So so we're doing, uh, you know, sixty nine, seventy Sinatra. A bit earlier, Elvis, and then Chuck Berry, 50, 56 Chuck Berry. Well, yeah, I'd like to see Chuck Berry, yeah. yeah. I also, I mean, the people, yeah, I mean, they go, they're going further back. So you're saying there's nothing further forward. Well, I saw Queen, so, you know, I've seen Queen and Simon and Garfunkel. I've seen all my favourites because I had the capacity to go and see them. I don't, I don't remember missing anybody. I got I got more disappointed than otherwise in seeing the people that I wanted to see because it never quite lived up to what it was. And yet there were extraordinary things like like Freddie at Live Aid, which was just unbelievable. It was not unexpected. I'm going to have to cut off because I'm being called. Perfect, perfect. Just give me the venue. What's the venue that we're seeing the, the three guys in? What's your favourite venue that you've been to? Well, the favourite venue I, I, I've been to, is, I like the modern, I, I like the... The theatre in Liverpool, I, I, what's it called when we saw Leonard Cohen? He said it's the Liverpool Arena. It's a brand new arena. It's Liverpool Arena, okay. So we're, we're going to see Chuck Berry, Frank Sinatra and Elvis play at the Liverpool Arena just for you, for your last show. Not bad. Yeah, that'll be fun. That'll be fun. Good stuff, good stuff. Harvey, I'll let you go. Just one last question. Any advice for anybody who's trying to get into the music industry these days? Um, first of all, believe in what you've got. Don't take anything ordinary to anybody it's got to be totally extraordinary or you're wasting your time and get used to being rejected without getting upset not taking any notice of rejection but to have ultimate belief in the person you're with the talent and everything just keep trying and trying and trying one door might open another door everything in the end to a degree is to do with luck and timing so who knows whether herman's hermits with i'm into something good would have happened today who knows Probably not.